Well, most of you have probably heard already, but I passed. So for those of you who may not know what I'm talking about, uh, I have been working on my PhD for what feels like forever, and uh, I had my oral exam yesterday, and uh, I was able to pass it. So if any of you are wondering how a dissertation defense works, is uh, at least this is how mine worked. Um, I only had the two professors that read my paper in the room with me, so I got there at about 9 o'clock. Well, I got there at about 9.40 just to make sure because I was a little worried about oversleeping, so I'm not really a morning person, so I got there early. And uh, so I'm there early, and uh, I didn't know how many people would be there. I guess in the past, they've had multiple professors in the room, but in this case, it was just me and the two that had read my paper. They sat down. They had told me they wanted me to give a 20-minute overview of my paper. So you can imagine having a 250-page or so paper and then cramming that down in 20 minutes. I worked really hard to shorten it up to that point. And what ended up happening was I would go about one or two minutes, and the professor would interrupt me and start asking me questions and grilling me anyway. So time in it was completely worthless at that point because I had no idea how long I'd gone. And that took about two hours of going through and them saying, you did this right, or you know, we think you could have done this, or what about this, or you know, questions about that, blah, 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 blah. I won't give you into the details because I'm sure you won't care, but uh, it got done. They send you out. Then all they did was conferred for about 10 minutes and came back in. I came back out and had me come back in the room and said, congratulations, Dr. Schroeder, you know, you're, you're uh, done. So that was very exciting. I have to do a few. They want me to do a few little changes, but they, don't even, they said they don't even care. They don't even, they don't even want to see them. So I'm just going to do a little few little changes. They'll print it. They'll send me a copy of the printed, and they'll keep a copy on file there at the school as well. And then I'll walk sometime in December. I'm sure we'll have some kind of uh, graduation party here in Wichita, so you don't all have to drive up there if you don't want to. But uh, I'm I'm very excited to be done. So once again, thank you for all uh, all your support. you wonder if I feel smarter? The answer is not really. I, I maybe, maybe later on I'll start feeling smarter, but right now I feel pretty much the same. But uh, let's go ahead and pray and get into our message this morning. Dear Lord, we just, as we come to your word, Lord, and we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, I just pray that you would soften our hearts, that we'd be prepared to listen to your word and delve into what you'd have for us. And as we just go verse by verse through this passage, just in some ways, quite important passage to us that uh, believe in baptism by immersion. Lord, I just pray that you would guide us and be with us and help us to be charitable, but help us to be accurate. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 8 now, and we, we talked about how we, you know, things of God had been kind of centered in Jerusalem, and now we've sort of shifted out of Jerusalem a little bit, and now we're sort of shifting into going into Samaria. So we had some stories of Samaritans, and now we're going to the rest of the places. So now we have another story, and we continue on with Philip and what he is doing here. And so we're going to kind of go through what Philip does here in this particular story. And this is sort of somewhat of a famous story. And I hope that many of you will recognize it. Now it says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
This is a desert place. So Gaza is like the southern part of, it's like the last water stop before you get in the desert. So it's quite a bit way south. The angel comes to Philip and it says you need to go down there. Now this is somewhat interesting in that the angel seems to be talking to Philip here. He does it a couple times. This is like a very direct communication. So once again, we've been talking about throughout Acts how God does some unique things in Acts that he doesn't necessarily seem to do all the time in every place and and whatnot. So um, I don't know if a lot of us would say I have an angel said. Now we maybe have times where we say the Lord led me or spoke to me or something like that. But this seems to be pretty direct communication that God commands Philip to go down to the south to the road. And so he goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he had left the Samaria, our story last time, he had gone to Jerusalem it seems, and he's headed down to the desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch. So often we refer to this story as the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, a queen of the Ethiopians who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, we don't know a ton about this guy, but let me give you some suggestions. Oftentimes, the reason someone had become a eunuch and served in the court is they usually were in charge of looking over the harem of the court. And so when your job was to look over the harem, and I won't, I'll spare you the details, you're welcome to Google it if you don't know what I mean, but of course it made sense that if you were going to look over all these uh, women of the whoever might be the king or whatever, you would uh, be forced to become a eunuch. But the, the you might see this as a really big negative, but oftentimes these people in this situation actually ended up with quite a bit of power and influence in the court. And it seems in this particular case, saying he was in charge of the treasure, he was like the accountant. And for some of us in this room, accountants are very important, right? They, they do a lot of good things. They they don't control the money in a sense, but in a sense they do, right? They're a very important person. You would not want someone you do not trust being your accountant. So this guy served in the court in Ethiopia. He was important. This is an African country. Ethiopia would be like south of Egypt. And so I will point out here, ironically, a few things. Christianity begins where? So Jesus, you know, so when we transition from the Old Testament, Israel, the New Testament, who were the first Christians? Jews. Then who was next? Samaritans, which were like part Jewish. And then who's next? Africans. Right? Ethiopia. He's from Africa. Jews, Samaritans, Africans. So if you look at people who say something like, God has somewhat blessed the white race and the, everyone else is somewhat second class, God made a pretty weird way of showing it, right? Who were the first? It, it wasn't Europeans, right? I don't think, I think God sees each of us equally, which is why some sort of trying to ascribe something special to a certain part of the world or whatnot or a certain ancestry is just so incredibly wrong. And I know we all agree with that, but I just think it's important to point out when we see this history, we begin with Jews, then Samaritans, and then we have an African. And he was returning and seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. So as he was turning, he was probably stopped. He may have stopped to give some water, and he was sitting in his chariot. Now, what this chariot probably was, it was, now he was a wealthier guy, possibly, if he worked in the court. So maybe it was a little bit more elaborate, but oftentimes these chariots were 
not too much more than a few boards stuck to some horses, and you would travel along those. And this would have been a very, very long trip. He was on months long to be able to get from where he was in Ethiopia to Africa all the way to Jerusalem and back. It would have taken a very, very long time. So it does seem like he is very dedicated you know, to be able to take the you know, it would take almost a year of his life, probably, over half of a year to make the entire trip there and back with a stop. So he certainly seems to have sort of a great passion for what he's doing, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join, his chari- and join this chariot. And you know, sometimes when I have a lack of guts to go talk to people about Christ as I should have, wouldn't it be nice if you had the Holy Spirit coming in and telling you, you should? But you know what? I think sometimes... We get a little nudge from that Holy Spirit. You know what we do anyway? We still don't do it, right? We still don't do it. But Philip here, he's the Holy Spirit says, go and join his chariot, and he does. And so Philip ran to him and heard, ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. The prophet asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up. And sit with him. Now, what God says, go talk to this man. There's a great opportunity. You know, some people aren't often open to the gospel when we try to witness to them. And if we force ourselves in every situation, sometimes it doesn't work. But we need to be ready because there are times when people are ready to hear it. You know, I, I remember when a professor, and he was also a pastor, and Mr. DeClean was his name. And just everyone at school really looked up to Mr. DeClean. He, was, he wasn't he wasn't really a great academic at all. He didn't have his PhD. He, he, no one really would have said he was some big scholar, though he was a plenty smart guy and everything. But the reason we all looked up to him is because the one thing we all felt like we wish we could do, like Mr. DeClean, he was so good at witnessing to other people. He was so good. And he, we, I had him in class one time. He'd talk about it. He'd say, yes, I, I know my neighbors and I get to know them, and then I try to find out what they like, and I try to be able to have some commonality with them so I can talk to them about it. But then one thing that he said I think that was really important, when people would move to town, he would, he would try to really meet them and greet them, and he'd say, you know, sometimes when people have a big change in their life, they're ready to hear about the gospel. And so he would say, you've got to be very sensitive to the time in which someone is ready to hear it. So sometimes we maybe have a person or life that we've been witnessing to. Sometimes it's a family member or something. And we think, oh, they just don't listen. They're never going to listen. You know, we get discouraged. It's doom and gloom. And, you know, what's going to happen? And, you know, they're never going to become a Christian. And they blah, 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 blah. You know, sometimes the time isn't right. But, you know, in this story, when God tells Philip to go talk to the Ethiopian eunuch, the eunuch is ready to listen. So he goes and he sits with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was said to, led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For this life is taken away from the earth. So he takes this quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And then you know what's interesting? We probably don't know how much of Isaiah they talked to. And when we get out later on, you're going to see it looks like they probably actually read a lot more than this. It seems like our author here of Acts, Luke, he probably just chose a little section of what they were studying to kind of bring to us. And likely they, they read more than this. And why this is so interesting 
is because when you get to Isaiah around 56, it starts to talk about how later, the end times, talking about the future, things would change. Things would change in a way that would be really important to this Ethiopian eunuch because in the Old Testament, there are actually rules that someone who is a eunuch couldn't do as many things in the temple as someone who wasn't. As a matter of fact, they had separate rules that if you were born a eunuch or later became a eunuch, they had separate rules. But in Isaiah 56, you know what it says? All that will go away. And whether you were born a eunuch or made a eunuch, none of that would matter. And so I think there is a really good chance that while he uses this particular scripture to launch on talking about Christ, it's very likely they led up all the way to chapter 56 when he say, you know, people probably look at you different because of the way you are. Even in his own country, he was, oh, he was the eunuch, right? That's, that's how everyone would know him. As a matter of fact, even just this morning as I've been talking, what do I sometimes refer to him as? The eunuch. The eunuch. That's how everyone would know him. It's like, probably thought of it like a, yeah, that's who I am. That's who I am. But Philip, was, I think, was to be able to go to him and say, you know what? There's going to be something that you're going to be able to identify with that's bigger than the eunuch. So even though you spent almost a year traveling up to Jerusalem to go to the temple, and the fact that you were a eunuch actually controlled and decided and had rules and restrictions on what you were able to even do in the temple, one day, that day has come because of Jesus Christ, that is all going away. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask, whom I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So he's not sure what it's, who they're talking about. He thinks maybe it's talking about Isaiah, the author, maybe someone else. And of course, we go on to 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You know, that passage in Isaiah is about someone who was ill-treated someone who was unfairly killed. And if we can think of anyone in the history of humanity who's been more unfairly treated and killed, is there any more unfairness than the Son of God coming to earth to save man? You know, no matter how unfairly someone's been treated, no human could offer what Jesus Christ was offering what he was coming to do for us, no other person could do for us. It's like, it's like someone giving you a great Christmas gift and you treating him like a total jerk. But, but the gift that Jesus was bringing was greater than any gift anyone could give. And, and what did we as humanity do? What did the group of people do? We weren't just jerks. Right? Humanity, we, we didn't just treat him poorly. We killed him. Killed him. We, we didn't even just kill him. We tortured him. We unfairly treated him. Yet he came to save us. And as they were going along the road, they came upon some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And of course, if you get into the big debate on what type of baptism one should have, this particular story is a big one, and I've probably talked a little bit of details about views on baptism and whatnot. I don't really want to get into it 
today very much, but we see an example here. Now, it is true that he was an adult and he got saved, so um, that's unique. So it's not like we're talking about a child here. So it's not like this is you know perfectly exemplary of every particular situation you might have. So you might be able to argue something like, yeah, well, this is an adult who got saved, but you know maybe infants could be baptized, maybe. So I, I'm not sure this, this particular passage proves absolutely everything. But walk with it, through it with me. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and the eunuch, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, I've talked about this in the men's class, but the word baptize did, is like not a word in English. Okay? Or it was not a word until they translated the Bible into English. This is what happens. Yeah, this Greek word, baptizo. What's the primary meaning of the word baptizo? Immerse or dip. It can also mean pour. I mean, it can also mean pour. It actually uh, even could mean sprinkle. You know, words are, words are complicated. It can mean a lot of different things. I'm not going to deny it could mean those other things as well. But the primary meaning, everyone agree, you know, there's, go get the Greek lexicon out. The, the, number one will be, will be something like immerse or dip or whatever. And so when they were translating this in 1611 or with, you know, the Geneva Bible or whatever, and they get to this word baptizo, and you get to this passage, and he baptizoed him. So they went down in the water. What probably happened here? Immersed him. But if you don't think you should do baptism by immersion, that's a little awkward. So you know what they did? They didn't translate, and he immersed him. They didn't translate it, and they dipped him. They didn't translate it, and then they poured water on him. They didn't translate it, I, they sprinkled on him. They didn't translate it at all. They just made up a new word. They baptized him. So until we translated the Bible from Greek to English, there was no such word as baptize. Because you can immerse someone in many different things, right? You can be immersed in the scriptures. You could be, you know, immersed in your work. There's a lot of ways to be immersed that aren't talking about being baptized at all. But now, so it's gotten so confusing. Now we think baptize is like a word. and It's, it's not really a word at all. I just refuse to translate. You know where this gets really awkward? When ecumenical groups translate the Bible into a new language. We're going from Greek to Spanish or whatever. We get to the word baptizo. What do we do? Do we just make up another new Spanish word? Do we write the word Spanish word for immerse? Do we write the Spanish word for dip or sprinkle or whatnot? So I think this is a very important passage to understand baptism, and it's important to understand that the word baptizo usually means immersed. can mean other things. It gets complicated. I'm, I said I wasn't going to get to it, and I already got way more into it than I thought I was going to, so sorry, sorry about that. And when they came up out of the water, 
So why do we think this should be true? I would say if we're going to baptizo, why we should translate this immersed or dipped or something. He came out of the water, and the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself, as we get to the end of our story, the eunuch is rejoicing. Philip finds himself in Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Now, I skipped that quickly, so let's jump back. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Once again, he jumped a long, long ways. The Spirit of God does something unique in Acts that we don't see other places all the time. So once again, I encourage you, when you're figuring out biblical doctrine, you're trying to figure out the way to do it every time, sometimes Acts can be a tough one because a lot of unique things happen that only happen a few times. How many people in the Bible sort of jump from one place to another? It's like four, I think. doesn't happen all the time, even in the Bible. So to say, well, it happens in Acts. It has to happen that exact way today. Maybe not. Maybe not. All right. So even in as we look at baptism, to sort of argue against myself, does it have to be exactly this way every time? I would look to more verses than just this one to prove it. I think this is the normal way to do it. I'm obviously a Baptist, so I think immersion is correct, but I understand if you are going to have the debate, you would want to look at more than this particular passage, if that makes sense. So then we go back to that first. I just jumped to a little bit, and we see that he goes and he preaches, and I just want to say a few things here. You know, baptism is really important. Sometimes we've been a Christian for a long time, and we don't think about it anymore. You know, I was baptized when I was like 18, and, you know, 18's feeling like a long time ago. For some of you, you probably baptized before you were 18, and it's really feeling like a long time ago, right? And so sometimes we don't talk about it, sometimes we don't think about it, sometimes it's easy for me as a preacher to talk about something else or focus on something else, but just this morning... As we come for communion this morning, I'd like to, if you've been baptized, I'd like you, as we come to the table, to think about that day that you were baptized. The day that you say, you know, not only have I decided to be a Christian, but I want the world to know. I want the world to know. I'd like you to think about that this morning as we take communion. I'd like you to think about that public profession and whether you are living out that public profession that you made, and maybe for some of you, long ago. And if any of you hasn't been, haven't been baptized, of course, I encourage you to do so. I, I think it's important to say, if I become a Christian, I really believe it, I know it, just like the Ethiopian eunuch says, what? What prevents me from being baptized? What prevents me from being baptized? If you've not been baptized, I'd ask you the same question. What's preventing you? from being baptized, telling the world that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning. And as we just look quickly at the story of Philip and his witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, Lord, I just just pray that you would let me live my life, that you would help me live my life. You would guide me in my life. 
to live that profession that I made when I got baptized. That it wasn't just a time when I got wet sometime when I was young, but it was a lifelong, life-changing choice that would change the direction of my life forever. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not decided to make that decision, maybe maybe not for the first time to follow Christ, and maybe if they have decided to follow Christ, maybe they haven't made the decision to tell the world that they believe. I just pray that today would be the day they say, hey, I need to be baptized as well. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.